Good morning. A little fresh and frosty today. But uh, this is an example of Minnesota. It's either sunny and cold or it's cloudy and warmer. We are reaching this week and the next week historically are the coldest weeks in Minnesota. And uh, so we're reaching that time. So it should turn better after a bit, a little warmer after a bit. But uh, anyway, beautiful sun dogs out this morning. And uh, so that's the winter version of a rainbow. Except that the sun is shining through ice crystals instead of shining through raindrops. And so acts as a natural prism for us. So, we'll continue on with our study in Micah, and I plan to finish that today, and then next Sunday we'll be going on into Nahum, and uh, be much the same type of message, but a hundred years later to the children of Israel. And so, anyway, let's bow for a word of prayer as we begin. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come to you, we thank you once again for being with us throughout the week. We thank you for giving us safety as we traveled in the cold this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would continue to guide and direct our study in the book of Micah and to heed the words that he gave to the children of Israel and that are applicable to us today. We ask this in your precious name. Amen. Okay, we ended up with... Chapter 6, verse 8, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with God? And so here we have one of the encouraging things that Micah is giving. And remember, we have this cycle of discouragement and then on to encouraging things. And then we have the, the punishment and then on to the encouraging thing again. So now we go on to verse 9. And verse 9 says, The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Who is... I never know whether it's who or whom. Uh, <clears throat> anyway... Um, who is the Lord speaking to here when it says the voice of the Lord cries to the city? This is one of those things where God is saying, and I'm sure that if your mother was anything like mine, if she really wanted to get your attention, it was Wayne Allen Deckert, you know, all three names. If you got all three names, you knew you were in trouble. So this is kind of what we have here. The Lord is giving all three names. And whom is he speaking to? We actually have a couple of possibilities. The most obvious one might be Israel, the children of Israel. The other possibility might be the individuals that are 
persecuting Israel or are going to coming on in and taking over. So that's another possibility. And so I want you to think about those two things. And the commentaries that are studied were almost equally divided on whom they thought this was referring to. But I have an idea, and some of my ideas, many of my ideas have been wrong. But anyway, uh, as we go on through these next verses, I want you to be thinking about what God is uh, saying and to whom he is speaking here. So we have this call for attention. Then verse 10, Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I quit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence, your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So now Micah is speaking to a specific group of individuals, and this could be, again, it could either be the Assyrians or it could be the children of Israel. And so we're talking about the cheating that was going on in the business. Now, one of the things is that the Assyrians, as they were coming on in, they were trying their best to to conquer Israel, and so they didn't mind cheating them. But we also had the situation of where you have the rulers and the priests in the temple. We had the money changers there, and the money changers, as they were exchanging money, they weren't always giving the proper amount of change when they were selling the lambs to the people that came for the sacrifices, they were charging exorbitant prices for these lambs. And so there was just a lot of things that were going on. And cheating was just a way of life. Now we talked about this early when we first started the study of Micah, about the cheating that's taking place in government, government affairs, uh, bribery, in many countries is just a matter of, of doing business. It's just the tax that you pay to be able to get something done. And so we have the same thing that's taking place here. Then we see, therefore, verse 13, Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but not be satisfied, you shall put away, but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourself with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. So he's talking about the frustration that they are having about carrying on their life. And so they are doing the normal things when a farmer plants a crop, he expects about three to four months later to be harvest that crop, and that would be his pay for the year. When a rancher raises cattle, he has the calves, and as they come out, either in six months or a year or so on, depending upon what type of operation he has, he plans to sell those and make some money. And what Micah is saying here, you're going to do these things but you're not going to be able to 
uh, get the reward. There's not going to be any uh, reward for you. So there was, this was a judgment against them. Now keep in mind, the question is coming up pretty soon, who was this, who was Micah talking to? We then go on to verse 16. For you have kept the statues of Omri, all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. So we see that Omri and Ahab were a couple of the kings of the north. Remember, we have the northern kingdom and we have the southern kingdom. Omri and Ahab were a couple of kings of the north. What characterized pretty much all of the kings of the north, as far as their character was concerned? Wicked. Wicked. They were bad. So there were very few, some of them may have had a few good characteristics, but they were basically bad. And so he's saying that you've kept the statutes or the laws of these bad kings. Now Ahab, what do we know about Ahab? Yes, Mike. Okay, he is the Al Capone of the gangsters. Uh, and so we see him, he is noted for his wickedness. Now, he married Jezebel. And when you hear, th- how many girls do you know whose name is Jezebel? <laughs> That's not generally chosen as a girl's name. And there is a good reason for that. Jezebel was a very wicked woman. And so he's talking about these two men and that they have followed after them. So now, having led you through this, who do you think the things that Micah is talking about here are uh, directed toward? The Assyrians or the children of Israel? Yes, Grant. Well, um, Micah's primary uh, prophecy was against the southern kingdom. Right. And thus also Jerusalem. Uh, These kings are northern kings, so it could be directed there, but the other issue is Omri was the founder of Samaria, which is the capital city of Israel, but there also could be the warning to the southern kingdom of Judah, and specifically Jerusalem as, as God's city, Okay. Not, not to continue to follow the direction of these northern kings. Okay. Now, if we're looking at the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom is pretty well gone at this time. And so he probably isn't prophesying to them. He could be prophesying to the southern kingdom, 
But the other option that we had was, was he prophesying to the Assyrians? Was he prophesying to the enemies of Israel? Any idea on that? No one wants to stick their neck out? Yes, Randy. Okay. Okay. Why would he bother that? Uh, Ryan, did you? Okay. Do the Assyrians carry, care at all about Omri and Ahab? No. No, they don't care at all about him. So I think that this is contrary to some of the commentaries that I read. I think that this is directly speaking to the southern kingdom and what's going to happen there. Did you have another comment? No, okay, all right. He was just buying something and bidding on it. <laughs> so, okay, any other comments on this? Yes. Okay, then, yes, and uh, then verse 16, it ends up, you have walked in their counsels, the counsels of Ahab and Omri, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Who's that referring to? Judah. Okay, Judah and Israel. Yes. Okay. All right. So there is always a remnant of people, and even in the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, Micah is warning them about what's going to happen to them if they continue on in their wicked ways, but there are some of them in there, in those people, that are following God and following the laws of God. Uh, this, along with other passages in Micah, are rather difficult to determine just exactly what they're referring to. As I said, there's there were two verses in Micah that one commentary spent 40 pages on. Uh, I did not read all 40 pages. But anyway, uh, even the commentaries that I'm looking through, they'll keep pointing this out. Well, now Micah seems to have switched gears here and talking to someone else, and so there's this switching back and forth. But I think that it's probably the... Um, the my people could be the remnant, and uh, I, I, I can't say for sure on that, and I don't quite understand that. Yeah, well, and, yes? Yeah, I, I think your conclusion, though, makes sense as I look at that, because he talks about his, his scorn, which he's uh, enveloped here in the last uh, several verses, but he's telling uh, the remnant, you're going to bear the scorn. You, you, 
know, you tell the, the wicked people, you're going to bear the scorn of my people. Okay. The faithful ones. All right. That makes sense. Okay. So the, the scorn would come to because of the remnant that we have. Now, in this whole chapter, chapter 6, we have the aspect of the government or the leaders of the people are taking advantage of the common individuals. They are dealing wickedly the weights and measurements, etc., all of these. And so it seems that the government or the ruling individuals here are just as guilty as uh, can be about causing the unfair treatment. There was a lot of unfair taxation that was taking place. There was a lot of wasteful spending. Does that sound familiar at all? Uh, seems to me that we had $18 trillion of surplus in the Minnesota Treasury about a year ago, a little over a year ago, and each one of you maybe got $256 uh, for that, but not any more than that. So we see the same conditions, unfortunately, in our country as what Micah is talking to the children of Israel about. Any comments or questions before we go on to chapter 7? Okay, chapter 7, we start out, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has gathered and as when the grapes have been gleaned. And I had something that I was going to, oh, here it is. Here's something that the commentary commentator wrote about the first part of Micah chapter 7. When in 1866, Queen Mary seemed to be in the ascendancy and John Knox had to leave Edinburgh for the West, John Knox prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit and put an end at thy good pleasure to this my miserable life. For justice and truth are not to be found among the children of men. It's hard to avoid despair when your nation and the cause of Christ in it seems to be going to wreck and ruin. One gets a whiff of the same in Micah's lament here in Micah 7, 1 through 7. I read, Woe is me, for I have become when the summer fruit has been gathered, when the grapes have been gleaned, there's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. I doubt that we can date the text specifically, but it was probably sometime before 700 B.C. The prophet knows that Yahweh's judgment both must come and is coming on Judah, and that Judah is walking in lockstep behind Israel into the sewer line of history. Uh, the author of this commentary uses some rather descriptive terminology, but the sewer line of history, it seems that we are getting close to that. And so uh, we see chapter 7, again, starts out in despair. Woe is me. 
The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no upright among mankind. Who does that sound like? From the Old Testament? Okay, Elijah, when he is at the cave, God, I'm the only guy that's left. I'm the only guy that's worshiping you. There's nobody else here. And so, sometime we think that way, and the, the same thing can happen to us. But we see that there is Micah's despair. And again, we're going to go from despair on to joy and praise at the end of this chapter. Uh, it says uh, that when the grapes have been gleaned, there's nothing there, there's no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. What was one of the rules that they, were have, that they had when they were harvesting their grains and produce? What was one of the rules that they were supposed to, Micah, uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, you remember in the, in the book of Ruth that she went out gleaning, and they were supposed to leave the edges of the field for the poor. They weren't supposed to harvest everything. Okay, all right. So they were supposed to leave some things. This was their form of welfare that the poor people could come on in and they could take what was left over and uh, so they could, and here it's saying, Micah is saying, there's, there's nothing there. They have gleaned everything right down to the end. There's no figs left, so on. And so it says, the godly has perished from the earth. The people that are doing the harvesting are not obeying the laws or the rules of the harvest. So we see then, they all lie and wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. The great man utters the evil desires of his soul. Thus they weave it together. And so again, we're seeing this aspect of the individuals, the rulers, the property owners and so on, are kind of getting together on this and that they are now causing the poor people to not have anything to go after. So we see that the, it says that each hunts the other with a net. This is the aspect of two individuals trying to find each other or two groups of people trying to find each other and uh, who knows, we don't know who is right and who is wrong in this. Verse 4 says, The best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment has come, now their confusion is at hand. The first two Phrases there, the best of them is like a briar, and the most upright of them a thorn hedge. So the best things that they have are not very good. Reminds me of our two presidential possible candidates right now. Is it possible that in a country of this size that we can't find two people that are more qualified 
to be president than those two. I don't care whether you're Democrat or Republican. Uh, there doesn't seem to be much good in either one of those. And this is exactly what Micah is saying. Uh, the best of them is like a briar. And uh, so anyway, it's, it's not, it, it doesn't look good. Then we go to verse 5. But no trust, put no trust in the neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the sons, for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. So we see here that uh, you can't trust anyone. It says uh, the one that uh, put no trust in your neighbor, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. So you can't even talk to your spouse. Your spouse might turn on you. And this is the same way in which we find the, the communist operated, where children would tell on their parents. Uh, this is the same way that North Korea is now operating. You, you don't know. There, there doesn't seem to be anyone that you can trust. And this is exactly what Micah is saying to the children of Israel. This is what had happened to them. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says, For the people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. And so this is exactly what Micah is saying, that you have to be careful uh, because there, is going, there are individuals that you absolutely cannot trust and even members of your own household. Then we have another abrupt change in Micah. But as for me... I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. <clears throat> Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Um, let's see. Okay, we'll stop right there for right now. So we have... Micah now has faith. And what, what is your term for faith? When you hear the word faith, what do you think of? Trust. Okay, trust. Hope. Hope, all right. And I, I think that when we say hope, as Christians, we have to define that just a little bit. Uh, you know, it's, a, it, it's not that I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope, you know, that something happens. 
But the hope is that you know it's going to happen, you just don't know when. And so it's not like sending off the sweepstakes award and hope that you will be the recipient of that, uh, knowing it probably won't happen, because you have one chance in how many billion. Uh, your chances of hitting by getting hit by lightning are much, much greater than winning the sweepstakes award. But the hope that we have here is the hope that we, we know it's going to happen. And so this is, Micah has switched now from looking at the futility of the Israelites if they continue on their way to the hope that he has and the uh, what, what he is able to look forward to. Now, <clears throat> I, a, a few um, comments that I had as far as faith is concerned. One was faith is a response to all that has gone before. So you know what's gone before and you have faith that that will be your lot also. And that would be part of, I know where Ruth is. I know I can see her again. I have that faith. Other thing is that faith is anticipation. It's anticipation of something. There's not anything you can do about it to speed it up or so on, but it is an anticipation. And faith is also an assurance that this will take place. Now, it says that faith grows only during trials. Let's comment about that just a little bit. Faith grows only during trials. Any comments on that statement? Yes, Mike. Okay. All right. So faith grows best during trials. Um, an analogy from athletics. And this is that you develop your muscles, but if you put the muscles under trial and work hard at them, they are going to grow faster, and they're going to grow bigger. And so they are going to grow during the trials that you have. Uh, if you've participated in any athletics, and the preseason running and conditioning, etc., not really fun, okay, but it is something that causes your ability to grow. Yes, uh, Grant. Paul did tell the Romans in chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So I think the importance of uh, being in scripture, being under the preaching of the word of God, actually grows our faith to prepare for trials. 
Okay, all right. So we, we build a foundation to be able to use that faith. And so all of these things work together. Okay, verse 8, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord, because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall not look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. So here we see what God is now speaking to the enemies. He is now speaking to the Assyrians. Don't be so glib about the things that you have, uh, that you've destroyed Israel, that you've destroyed Jerusalem. Uh, That's not going to be the end. You are going to suffer for those things. And so the enemies of God are going to suffer uh, because he doesn't, uh, and, and we see here that they actually, most of the time, probably went over and above beyond what God really had intended for them to do as they were taking over from Israel. Then we continue, a day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, from the mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. So we see that the, uh, it says the, the building of your walls. Generally, we think of walls as being a defensive positioning. They built the walls around their city to prevent their city from being overrun. The term as I understand it here for walls, is not a protective or a defensive mechanism. It's just going about their normal life. You build a wall to mark your territory, and you'll be able to go back to your normal life. And he said that uh, the boundary shall be far extended. In other words, they were going to get more territory from this. Uh, They're going to come from Assyria and Egypt, and uh, they are going to be asking you uh, for information. So now Assyria and Egypt would be the the Gentiles, and I think Micah is here referring to the fact that the Gentiles are going to come back to Egypt or excuse me, Gentiles are going to come back to Israel, and so the Gentiles are going to learn from the Jews. And this is the thing, we know that the Gentiles are grafted into the Jewish lineage, into Christianity and Yahweh. We are grafted on in, and I think that this is what Micah is referring to. Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land, 
Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead in the days of old. So Micah is here saying, you know, back to his rejoicing. Things are going to get better. Now, when is this going to be? Uh, as far as the near term is concerned, for the Jews, this is going to be somewhere when they come back from Babylon. But the far term is that this is probably going to the millennium kingdom that we have to look forward to. And so uh, we're going to, it says, shepherd your people with the staff. There's a rod and there's a staff. And when we had the little hiatus and I spoke about Psalm 23 and the life of a shepherd, what does the staff used for? The staff was to guide the sheep. The rod was to discipline. But the staff was to guide the sheep. And so here we see that we are to, that he is going to be guiding us with the staff. Bashan and Gilead were, were areas of uh, Israel that were uh, basically gardens. And so he's looking forward to this. Verse 15, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show you marvelous things. Okay, this is talking about when they came out of Egypt as they were, had been in captivity. They had been slaves. They're in Egypt. They came out. And what were some of the marvelous things that the people of Israel saw as they came out of Egypt? Just quickly. Okay, the Red Sea crossing on dry land. Pardon? Water in the desert, right. You saw that. Pardon? Okay, the fire to guide them by night, the cloud to cover them by day. So they had this. Manna, right. They had the manna. And when they complained about the manna too much, God gave them quails. So anyway, I wonder if that was under glass. Uh, but, but anyway, uh, it was, God truly showed them many marvelous things. The crossing of the Jordan River, uh, the uh, being able to take Jericho uh, without an army, and so on. So he had shown them all of these wonderful things. Then verse 16 and 17, The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God and they shall be in fear of you. So here he is referring to the enemies of the Jews, what is going to happen to them. And lick the dust like a serpent, probably referring back to the Garden of Eden when God made the serpent to crawl on its belly all of these times. And so there's going to be a downfall of these, of these enemies. Then the last few verses. 
Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Now this is one of those things, when God looked on the earth and man was so sinful, he sent the flood. But did he continue to persecute man after that? No, he turned away. And so if we are punished for a sin or something, this doesn't mean that God is going to keep that in mind and is going to now continue to have this. He will have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You shall show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn in our fathers from the days of old. So Micah is here rejoicing, the ultimate rejoicing, after all of the the trials and tribulations that the Jews are going through, because of their sinfulness, there will be a day of rejoicing. Any comments or questions that you have? Okay, next Sunday we will head on into uh, Nahum, and uh, we'll uh, continue on with that. You are dismissed.